everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. All right, good morning, Discovery. Um, We are starting Advent early. It's technically December 3rd, but we're cheating at this church and we're starting early, but can we all agree we need it? Okay, we need a bit more Advent. Um, Advent, for those who are unfamiliar with it, is this amazing season where you look back at what God has done, and you look now at what God is doing, and you look ahead at what we cannot wait for God to do. It's really an intense season, and with everything going on, we just thought, man, an extra week of Advent wouldn't go down badly. So for those of you who are able, we're going to ask you to stand as we read our Advent reading today. And I know we're not Catholics in this room. I mean, some of us are lapsed Catholics, which, by the way, that's great. But uh, at the end of this reading, just a little tip, I am going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And if we were all in a Catholic church, we would say, thanks be to God. I tried it at nine o'clock and it was a colossal failure uh, because, you know, we're freaking evangelicals. We do whatever the heck we want. So I just thought I'd just kind of coach us a little so we can participate together. Okay, here's the word of the Lord. Uh, Isaiah 9, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us, a child is born and to us, a son is given And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, great. You can take a seat, and you can feel smug that you're so much better than the 9 o'clock service. Hey, if you're new to church... If, if, you, if your relationship with church is rusty, or you just weren't someone that grew up in church, like that, that's my story. I am not a church kid. It might be helpful for you to know that that passage we just read, that's just one of those really precious passages to church people. Like, I, I've been trying to think this week, what is it that makes this passage so precious to those of us who have been around church in a while? And I was having a think about this um, a couple of years ago. Uh, Peter Jackson released a documentary called Get Back, and it's, it's how the Beatles came from uh, coming up with ideas to fully form songs. I don't remember if the documentary is six hours or nine hours. I think it's nine hours long, because Peter Jackson, he's the guy that made Lord of the Rings. He's incapable of short films. He just makes these really long things. And I'm a you know, music nerd, and I love the Beatles. And, and all I could tell you is, as a middle-aged man... Um, When I'm watching that documentary and Paul McCartney for the first time sits down and tries a new melody on the rest of the band, he's like, hey, I think I've got something. And then he plays The Long and Winding Road. Something profound happens in me. And I can't quite name it for us, but that's this passage. Something happens in us. The best I can say is somehow I hear The Long and Winding Road when he first said it. And he's like, is this something? And I'm like, is this something? I've been listening to this song my whole life. And as I hear it today, it's like I have a little recap of my whole life, all of my memories packed into that. I'm not suggesting that Scripture and the Beatles are on equal footing. Here's what I'm saying. For some of you, you have heard this passage in church 30 times, 50 times, 
some of you whitehead souls, 60 times. Year after year after year, you come to church, and it's Advent, and it's Christmas, and you know someone's going to read Isaiah 9. Someone's going to read it. And because you look around the world and you see so much conflict and so much suffering, or maybe, like many of us, you approach the, the Christmas season with like, oh, that, oh man, there's loss and there's grief, it's complicated. And somebody reads Isaiah 9, and it's like, you, it's like you hitch your year to that passage that year, and then you come back another year, and another year is gone. And next thing you know, for those of you who are new at a church, those of us who have a few decades under our belt in church, we just keep stacking years of Isaiah 9 on top of each other. It's just an amazing thing. And, and what's interesting about this passage is we just need to keep being reminded of it, don't we? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has formed. What is it? What is, is it? It's not nostalgia. It's memory and ache and hope and yearning. It's... I guess the word for it's anticipation, it's, it's possibility, it's the promise of peace one day. And so you hear this passage and you start to look ahead to that day when the everlasting Father, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, will establish his government on earth. And you look around here at the end of 2023 and you see so much human conflict in the world and you long for peace. Israel and Palestine. What do you do about it? Like, it's colossal. It's horrendous. But here in the Colorado suburbs, it's not entirely clear what we can do about it. We pray. We pray by faith. And I don't know if you're like me, but oftentimes when I pray for nations, how do I say this? I believe by faith that it makes a difference because the Scripture commands me to pray for nations, and so I do it. But my deeper, more core belief doesn't believe it makes a difference. So one of the reasons I pray for the nations is in protest against my doubt. Ukraine and Russia, remember that? Still going on. Do you struggle to keep up with all the conflicts in the world? Like, is it, it's almost embarrassing, isn't it? It's like, which one? Which one? Because the next one has come to displace the last one. Conflict, conflict, conflict. Okay, um, how about 2024? Anyone think we have a chance at a peaceful, gentle election year? Like maybe, maybe it's gotten as bad as it's ever going to get, and it's 2024 where we finally say, you know what I would like to do? You who's voting opposite from me, let me listen. Let me just sit down and listen to learn your point of view. No, probably not. Conflict, conflict, conflict. I can probably raise the anxiety in this room right now with four words. Donald Trump, Joe Biden. Then you get on Facebook and Twitter, conflict, conflict, conflict. Then you get on Instagram and TikTok. Okay, well, that's all cute videos about dogs. But for some of you, when you think about it, you're not so much consumed by the world events as you are consumed by your own relationships, friend group drama, or it's quite common for many of us, just our own inner turmoil. Jesus promises peace, and you're like, how do I get that? How do I actually live as a person of peace in a world of conflict? It's very difficult. But Isaiah says in this passage that the Prince of Peace, the Wonderful Counselor, will come and will usher in light into the darkest places. 
And you look around and you wonder if there could be more peace than there really is. Now, there's this old Catholic mystic from the Middle Ages named Teresa of Avila. She's considered like a saint in the Catholic Church. She says really profound things, and we all kind of hang our hat on things she says. Here's something that Teresa said. All shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Are you familiar with that passage or that saying? All shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. I am comforted that she said it in a time of great turmoil. That's helpful. But I hear that, and I think, is it though? You know, like, all shall be well. But what she's trying to say is, no matter what happens, God is with us. All will ultimately be well. You can kind of relax into what's going on. All shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. But I'm personally a fan of the addendum that Mandy Smith added to that, where Mandy Smith said, believing that statement requires the broadest possible definition of all and well. That feels right to me. So we come to this Advent season in a time of fierce conflict. We come and put another year under our belts, and we stack another Isaiah 9 into our memories and into our faith, And that's when we start to realize, wait a minute, when hasn't there been conflict? Can you think of a year where you attended a church and somebody got up and read Isaiah chapter 9 and you said, you know what, we can take a year off from that this year. We don't need the hope of Isaiah 9 this year. Can you think of a year, any time in human history, Isaiah wrote these words approximately 2,750 years ago. Uh, And has there ever been a time in the last 2,700 years where the people of faith come and they hear the reading of Isaiah and they say, things are well, God is on his throne, the Prince of Peace, everything that we have ever hoped for is now with us. No, every year. I think this is actually the the secret of this passage and the power of this passage. Every year it raises in in us hope that peace is actually here. We just have to learn to look for it. And peace is actually here, and we have to learn how to give it, how to be agents of peace. I love the way Isaiah plays with light and darkness. He's talking about these themes and the idea that you know, darkness cannot keep light at bay. I was recently watching a, a Bob Ross painting video. I don't know if you're a fan of Bob Ross, and if you're not, what's your problem, first of all? But Man, he is really something. I mean, he's just, just no one like Bob Ross as an immigrant, as an Australian. I didn't grow up with Bob Ross. I discovered him when I came here for college, and I was hooked right away. I got it right away. I'm like, this is the most amazing thing to do with your life. Sit down and watch Bob paint slowly and talk to you calmly. Like, you don't need, you don't need blood pressure medication when you're watching a Bob Ross video. So recently I came across a painting video that really struck me because it was the episode that he filmed after his wife died. His wife passed away and he took some time off and and this episode was his first episode back, his first painting after his wife died. And I've got a little clip for it I'm going to show you. But of course it's old, it's PBS, they didn't have a great budget and it's old, so it's a little hard to understand the audio. So I'm just going to give us a few prompts as, as you listen to it, it might help you hear it. Bob is talking about painting with light colors and painting with dark colors. And he's just saying, you cannot paint light on light. It does no good at all in the painting. You have to paint light on darkness. That's the only way light makes sense is when it's on darkness. And you can't paint dark on dark. That doesn't work. And then you'll just, in the last part of it, I won't spoil it, you'll just get to watch 
what it's like for him to grieve his wife in a, in a, a very Bob Ross way. Let's take a look. I absolutely have to have dark in order to have light. Gotta have dark. Gotta have opposites. Dark and light, light and dark, continually in painting. If you have light on light, you have nothing. If you have dark on dark, you basically have nothing. There we are. You know, it's like in life. If you gotta have a little sadness once in a while so you, you know when the good times come. I'm waiting on the good times now. So I, I think from all places, uh, Bob Ross gets to help us understand Advent a little bit. The idea that we're not waiting for a Prince of Peace to finally come and bring utopia. I'll, I'll just say as a pastor that I do get concerned when we look for the second coming of Jesus. First of all, I'm not sure it's the second coming. I think it's either the third coming because the church in many ways is the second coming of Jesus, the body of Christ we're called. Or is it the third coming or the second coming? Or is it like the infinite coming again and again and again as Jesus shows up and establishes again and again his reign and his rule in this earth right now? Which is it? I don't know. Maybe that's a conversation for another day. But I think uh, just this simple idea that you cannot make sense of light unless there's a dark context. Sadness is okay. It helps us look forward to the good times. This is, I think, what Isaiah is getting at, that we are responsible, all of us, we are to take responsibility to hunt down the Prince of Peace and see where God is at work, and also not just so we can be comforted, but also to be agents of this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting Father. And so, in Isaiah's day, it was a prophecy. And, you know, just, we won't get into the prophets, but Isaiah prophesied in the time when Ahaz was the king. And you can Google Ahaz on your own. Um, there is a website, Daily King, where you get to do your daily king. I don't know if you want to dig into that. You're like, I didn't know I wanted to, and now I really want to. I get that. I felt the same way when I discovered the Daily King on the internet. So I looked up the Daily King website for Ahaz, and yes, yeah, sure enough, he was 20 when he became king. Uh, the, the author of Kings and the author of Chronicles, they both declared him evil. You know, today we get really uncomfortable calling another human being evil, but the authors of Scripture are quite comfortable pointing at someone and saying, that's an evil person. And so Ahaz was evil, and it was in the context of Ahaz's evil that Isaiah first wrote these words. Ahaz didn't follow the one true God, Yahweh. He followed the foreign god, Molech, and he would sacrifice his children in a fire to Molech. He would make them walk through... Uh, open flames to try to kind of a weird sort of baptism for Molech. The other thing that I find interesting is 2,750 years ago, Ahaz's primary concern when he was living in the, in the Israel-Palestine region was how am I going to keep my land without my neighbors invading it and how can I get more of their land? It turns out that the conflict that we are trying to sort out today is very old and very complicated and it's been going around and around and around and around. And because Ahaz was a terrible king, uh, Isaiah prophesied that one day there'll be a wonderful king. And I just love that Isaiah did that right in Ahaz's face. 
He talked about the Prince of Peace and the Wonderful Counselor. But of course, those of us who are Christians, we don't spend much time in 730 BC. Our interest in this passage is Jesus' birth. That's what gets us really lit up. We're like, Isaiah, yes, maybe it was fulfilled in Isaiah's time. Some people say that that prophecy was fulfilled, but it was certainly fulfilled again and completed and perfected in the person of Jesus. And that brings us to this amazing encounter uh, when the angel Gabriel came to visit Mary to tell her that she's going to be pregnant and she's going to carry the hope of all mankind. Like what an astonishing thing to say to what was probably a 14, maybe 15 year old young girl, this, this peasant young girl who's engaged to be married to Joseph. Now, what I love about this encounter is Gabriel shows up and Mary is startled. If you want to do a little history of angels in the Bible, every time an angel shows up, it freaks people out. Like if you picture the other time when the angel showed up to the shepherds, by the time the angel was done telling the shepherds to go see baby Jesus, they had to go get all their sheep again. The sheep had scattered like everyone's freaked out. Only in modern culture is an angel a comfort. That's my point. In the Bible, the actual angels in the Bible are terrifying, which explains why the angel's first words to Mary are, don't be afraid. Then he goes on to say, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. And Luke records, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Mary knows her angel theology. Mary's like, this is an angel? Oh no, something bad's about to happen. And here's what he says to her. I'll just read it verbatim for us. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You're to call him Jesus. He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. And his kingdom will never end. The fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9. And then Gabriel used some more words. And then Mary's famous response. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Or another translation says, may it be to me as you say. In other words, Mary's like, I'm in. Okay, I'm in for that. Uh, in other words, when Mary was downloading an app from the iTunes store and it said, here's the terms and conditions, scroll to the bottom and click agree. It's not that she didn't read the terms and conditions. It's that Gabriel didn't give them to her. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, last week, a number of us went on an Advent retreat. Uh, Denver Seminary has this wonderful ministry called the Abbey where they offer to the public a day retreat. You can just take a day of business hours and you can go and the spiritual directors from Denver Seminary will lead you on a day of silent retreat and they do it every Advent. Anyone can do it. You guys could do it next year. You just have to take a day off work and it's really worth it. And so a number of us went this year and they do a little bit of teaching and then there's a lot of reflection and guidance. But in the afternoon session, one of the teachers, Chris, he talked about this encounter between Gabriel and Mary. And Chris said, uh, he said, look, Gabriel told Mary the truth, but he totally understated the deal. He totally left out the details of what Mary was agreeing to. And thank God that he did, right? Can you imagine the terms and conditions that he would have told Mary? Hey, uh, even though God is in it and this is God's will and God is sovereign and God is love, your son is going to suffer like you've never seen before. 
And he's going to be bullied by religious leaders. The people that you've respected and learned from your whole life, they're going to be his greatest enemy. And he's going to be innocent and nothing but love. And people are going to love him. The crowd is going to love him. He's going to be a healer. He's going to perform healings. He's going to teach like you've never heard. Oh, but also this innocent man is going to be falsely accused on trumped up charges. And he will be tortured to an inch of his life. And you'll be there. And then, you're not going to believe it, Mary, but he's going to be crucified. And this is all part of God's plan. Are you in? How many of you have said yes to God, not knowing that the road was incredibly bumpy? It feels a bit like a raw deal at times, doesn't it? You know how sometimes we pass cliches around in our community? We, we don't mean to, but we get anxious in situations and so we come up with a cliche that's not true but sounds almost true i call them almost bible they're almost bible like the cliche god won't give you more than you can bear that's almost bible it just turns out to be heresy from the pit of hill but it's almost bible i'm not a fan of these cliches my general idea is if it fits on a bumper sticker be very suspicious of it this is a general statement have you heard this cliche the safest place to be is in the center of god's will is it though is it though? Or maybe we should follow up that cliche. Maybe that is true. And we should say, what do you mean by safe? And what do I assume by safe? Because my goodness, Jesus' road was a bumpy road, wasn't it? And so what I want us to do this Advent is just to recognize that God's peace very rarely makes things easier. But it always enters into chaos and redeems it. It's not like, as, how many times have you prayed, Lord, take it away? I mean, I've probably prayed that prayer maybe 10,000 times in my life. Lord, please take it away, whatever it is. My friend who's suffering cancer, whatever the problem is, Lord, please take it away. There's nothing wrong with that prayer. My beef is that God is not in the habit of answering it enough. He answers it, but not enough. Can we, can we amen that? Is that true for you too? I would like God to take more of it away than God takes it away. That's true. But what I can count on, and I've taken this to the bank, I've bet my whole life on it, and you have too, is God always enters into the mess and the violence and the evil and the chaos, and he redeems it. And he makes something beautiful even from it, God's peace in the midst of horror and violence and evil. And so, every week at Discovery, we receive communion, and rather than doing it at the end of the sermon, we're going to do it right now in the middle of the sermon I checked with the establishment. They said it's okay. So Aaron, if you would come up, I've asked Aaron if he would sing. Aaron is not just a worship leader. He also is a singer-songwriter. And I asked Aaron to sing for us one of my favorite of his songs because it so beautifully reminds us that the melody and the vibe and the lyric, it so beautifully reminds us of the Prince of Peace and the Everlasting Father. And what I'm going to invite us to do as our ushers go ahead and distribute communion is I'm going to invite us this Advent just to sit with Mary a little bit in communion just spend some time with mary and the angel as she begins to carry the christ child and just reflect on all that she and jesus went through to accomplish god's will and those of you who know the stories you might just think about a couple of those stories about what did mary have to suffer for our good god who's the prince of peace what did jesus have to suffer now everyone's going to take communion today on your own time Aaron will start singing, you receive communion whenever you like. But when you take the bread, would you think of darkness? 
The bread represents the death of Jesus Christ to wipe away our sins. And so as you receive the bread, just think of darkness. And then as you receive the cup, this represents the new life in Christ. Think of light and how the light shines in the darkness. This is how I'm going to invite us to receive communion today. You can receive it anytime you like.
that suggest that the structure of the Gospels, of the life of Jesus, is a metaphor of a creation story. So in Genesis 1, God created everything in six days, and each day he did something different and a different creation, day six being the pinnacle of creation, which was he made Adam. Day seven, God rested, probably in flannel. That's what I've always imagined. He just put on some flannel and rested. And some scholars say that the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels is, in a sense, a reenactment of a new creation. That his Sermon on the Mount and his healings and his parables and his deploying of the disciples as days one through five of Jesus' creation of a new kingdom, a new way, his death on the cross being the pinnacle of his creation work, the new Adam, redeeming where the old Adam fell short. And just to be clear, yes, Jesus died. But metaphorically, day seven, he enters into his Sabbath rest in the tomb. That's where he rested from all his work. And then that Sunday morning, the first day of a new creation, the world that we now get to live in, not a perfect world, but a world where God's kingdom has an outpost on earth established in the church. Warts and all, no question, but in the church. Sometimes I wonder if the most tangible way for us to notice the Prince of Peace is to simply remember our hope that God defeats death, that God defeats the wages of death, the price of sin and the sting of death. It's it's the Apostle Paul who writes, where, O death, is your sting? And I don't know how you read that passage, but I read it as a taunt. Like Paul is taunting death. Where's your sting, death? Kind of like that. Did you lose your sting, death? Can't find your sting? That's how I read it. I don't know if that's accurate to the original, but Paul is basically reminding that death no longer has a hold of us. You know, bees sting once and then they die. Death's like a bee. It stings once and then it dies. And all that's left is life. People walking in darkness have seen a great light and on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Could it be that we hold the responsibility to not only look for the Prince of Peace beyond the circumstances and the news and our social media feeds, but also to be the primary ambassadors of God's peace, helping co-labor and establishing God's kingdom, representing life in a culture of death and violence, proclaiming freedom in a world soaked in sin and in sin's price. I uh, 
I travel full-time now, and most of my work is with pastors. Uh, sometimes I work with churches, sometimes I work with businesses, but the majority of my work is churches and Christian nonprofits. And my, my life has become amazingly, astonishingly bizarre. Last week, I was preaching in Evergreen to a group of dogs because it was a country church in Evergreen where everyone gets to bring their dog. It was about the best thing ever. I got up and I'm like, oh, hi, Georgia. This black lab is sitting in the aisle, like just ready, you know, Bible open, whole deal. Uh, I wasn't sure whether to share this because I didn't want it to come across the wrong way, but it's just funny, so I'm going to share it. But about three weeks ago, I was in Nashville, speaking in Nashville at a conference for youth and children's workers. There was maybe 1,200 people there. And I showed up early in the morning to do my sound check. And the people that run the conference, they pulled me aside and they said, hey, we want you to know we have a surprise guest for the conference. The day I was there was the second day of the conference. They'd met the day before. And so this, they were going to have a surprise guest. And the conference people said to me, Stephen Curtis Chapman is going to open for you and then you'll go out and speak. Now, uh, I'm a musician, although having heard Stephen Curtis Chapman, I, I no longer say I play guitar, I just say I play at guitar. Um, but I'm a huge fan of Stephen Curtis Chapman, and it was hard to be in the same room with him and not fanboy and start licking him and do weird things. Um, and in case, he was incredibly gracious, very kind gentleman, we got a selfie. But um, I'm standing backstage, and they go out to announce Stephen Curtis Chapman, and here's how they did it. All right, everyone, this is day two of the conference, and boy, are you in for a treat, because we have Steve Cuss here to talk about managing leadership anxiety. But before he comes out, oh my goodness, who wants to go on a great adventure? Who's here for the sake of the call? And I've got this on video. It's like they're announcing a beetle. The crowd, like, loses their mind. Blah! Everyone becomes a teenager just screaming. And then Stephen comes out, and he does about 25, 30 minutes, and he was amazing. He was amazing. And then he walks off to this raucous ovation, fist bumps daddy as I walk on, and then it's like, hi, everyone. <laughs> hi, just another Stephen. <laughs> yeah. I was in Fargo, North Dakota. Uh, I was in a place called Normal, Illinois. Why am I telling you this? No matter where I go, there's a church full of people just like you, just doing the most simple and world-changing things. This church in Evergreen I was at last Sunday, there's about 120 people, including kids. It's a small church. They've packed a 1,000 gift boxes for kids in global poverty. I'm not talking like shoe boxes. I'm talking like a big Home Depot moving box, a 1,000 of them, a church of 120 in Evergreen, a church you and I probably had never heard of until now. Uh, in normal Illinois, I went to what I call just another regular megachurch. And I don't say that disparagingly, I say that wonderfully. This is just another church of six or 7,000 Christians in the Midwest that you've probably never heard of that has the largest food bank in the region, that has two registered nurses on staff full-time. So they are the number one resource in their county for people with special needs, the churches. Uh, Last year, I got to be in Indonesia, and I've been Zooming with these people in Indonesia since then, and I'll be back there in August. Indonesia has 18,000 islands. 6,000 of them are inhabited by people. 
And when we meet in Jakarta, a number of Christians, and they're not all pastors, some of them are just young Christians, fly in from these remote islands. My point is, you can fly 24 hours around the world, get off the plane in one of the biggest cities in the world in Jakarta, and then take a tiny little plane and go to some island that you've never heard of, just one of the 6,000 inhabited islands of Indonesia, and there's a church. takes about 24 hours to get to Kenya. takes about 20 hours to get to Asuncion, Paraguay, where our beloved partners Dan and Christy Rich are. And you get to Asuncion, and for some of you, that'll be the longest flight you've ever taken. If, if we ever get up on here and say, why don't you go to Paraguay or Albania or Costa Rica, you should just say yes and figure it out later because it'll change your life. Because you'll fly to... Asuncion, which is the capital of Paraguay. I didn't know that either until I went there. And you're like, man, that was a long trip. And then Dan and Christy are like, it hasn't even started yet. And then they'll take you on an eight-hour road on dirt roads and bridges that may, not, may or may not be stable. And you'll end up in this little village called Jutu. I don't even know where it is. Like if you gave me a map of Paraguay, I couldn't say, well, Jutu's there. I just know it's um, far, far away from the capital. It's a really rural village. And what you'll find there is a group of Christians an outpost of the kingdom of heaven, displaying the Prince of Peace, uh, proclaiming life in a culture of death, proclaiming freedom in a culture that's been soaked by sin. There will come a day when death will be defeated and we will spend eternity with God, but not yet. That day is in our future. We don't know when it is. It'll be a different day for each of us. And death will sting us, but just once. And then death will die. And then life will take over. Resurrection life. I was thinking this week about heaven. And I think what strikes me most about heaven, if I could be frank, is how little I think about it. That's what I thought about when I thought about heaven this week. I thought, I don't think about heaven very much. And I was trying to figure out why. I've been actually trying to figure this out for a few years. I've noticed in my life, I don't think about heaven much. Whenever somebody close to me dies, I always think about heaven. Always. So when I'm in active grief, I think about heaven more. That's true. I think every time I hear about a school shooting, I think about heaven. I get that, like, sick in the guts feeling. Like, oh, God, just come and make it right enough. So I think about heaven then. And then occasionally with these world conflicts. But honestly, I mean, honestly, I bet 90 to 95% of my life I don't spend much time thinking about heaven. How about you? This is not a question that's intended to incite guilt. It's just an honest, where are you at with heaven? So I've got a theory that I want to share with you. I don't know if this is true. It may be wrong, but I'm going to share it at risk. Um, And I'll put it on the screen for you. I think this is the way it goes. When life feels better than afterlife, we don't think about heaven. But when the next life feels better than this life, we long for heaven. I think that's the way it works. And I think the reason the New Testament writers talk about heaven so much is life was so tough for them. They are like, let's get this one over and let's get the next one going. Whereas for many of us, our life is pretty good a lot. And so I've noticed like Paul says to live as Christ and to die as gain. You know that phrase from Paul? But I look at my life and I think, well, the way I live is to live as gain and to die as Christ. Like Paul is saying, I'm kind of done with being tortured. 
How about I die and then I get the benefit of eternal life now? Earlier, please. I would like that earlier. Whereas what I say is, I would love to watch my grandchildren walk down the aisle in their wedding one day. That would be amazing. I would love to meet my great-grandchildren. And having done that, maybe my wife could take my teeth out at night and then I could just drift off into eternity what, that to, live is, to live is gain. Right? So where are you with that? This week, Gordon Conwell Seminary announced the tragic death of its former president, Dr. Walt Kaiser. Uh, Walt Kaiser is a legend in theology. Many of us who went to seminary, we read his Old Testament scholarship. I, I never met him, but he's one of those academics that is more than a scholar. So many of his students just loved him because he loved them. And so when Gordon Conwell announced his death on social media, their retired president, all of these people got onto Twitter and started posting their memories of Walt Kaiser. The only problem was Walt wasn't dead. They made a mistake. He was alive. He was reading the Twitter feed while sipping coffee with his wife, Nancy, (laughs) which caused the seminary to take down their announcement and replace it with this one. I love this. The information we received regarding the passing of our beloved President Emeritus has proven, joyfully, to have been false. (laughs) Dr. Walt Kaiser is alive and well, for which we rejoice. At the same time, we do extend our sincere regrets for the wrong information, yada, yada. And then I love the second paragraph. We do not regret having honored him in this way, but rather that we contributed to the spread of this false information. Our president, Dr. Sunquist, has communicated to him directly, so on and so on. It's fine. It's just funny. But... Walt issued a statement, and I've got that on the screen for us. I just love the hope in that. So that's why we sing. That's why we declare God's peace. That's why we become agents of reconciliation in a sin-soaked world. This is what Advent is all about. Uh, I'm going to invite Aaron and Alex to come and lead us in worship of the Prince of Peace, the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, of whose kingdom has no end. And so those who are able, if you would stand, and let's pray, and then let's sing. Our Father, this life is amazing, and it's incredibly painful, and there's all kinds of conflict and suffering in this world. And yet, where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst ushering in your peace, ordering the chaos, bringing light to very dark places. Thank you, Lord, that we are not passive victims of this world, but we are active agents of your kingdom. And we are responsible to usher in the freedom that you have promised people, to be agents of reconciliation in a sin-soaked world. Thank you for the desperately needed reminder of Isaiah, Lord, And thank you that we get to sing and declare your goodness, not just with words, but with melody and the beauty of music. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.